Well, good morning again. Thank you. If uh, you have a Bible, you can open it to Matthew, or not Matthew, Mark, Mark chapter 5. If you don't have one and want to follow along when we're reading, we're going to be in uh, page 840. If you want to grab one of those Bibles under the chairs, you can turn to 840. It's Mark chapter 5. We're in verse 21 through 43 today. Uh, we've been calling the series Follow and trying to respond to the challenge that the gospel gives us that we would follow Jesus. That uh, today, just as the disciples followed Jesus 2,000 years ago, that we would follow Jesus. Um, and we find some encouragement in the book of Mark. We, we've said before that it's the most urgent of the gospels. And also it's the one that kind of shows more than the other gospels how stupid the disciples are sometimes. So I think that gives us some encouragement that, that we can kind of stumble along but also still be followers of him. And so that's the challenge for us. Uh, today we're calling it Follow the Healer. We're going to see some significant healings of Jesus in this uh, section. And the kind of the concept I have starting off is that we all like the idea of Jesus as a healer, um, but we kind of want healing on our terms. Does that make sense? That, that we like this, this abstract Jesus healer out there, uh, but we really want Jesus to heal the way we want him to heal us, on the timetable that we want him to heal us on, and in the way that we want him to heal us. And it doesn't always work out that way. And so we're challenged to, to come to him as healer, but also to come to him on, on his terms, uh, and to trust him, and to see him as, as Lord. So if you'll read with me, we'll start in verse 21. It says, And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. So we talked last week about the Sea of Galilee. There was a lot of uh, fishing and a lot of trade here. This was a major um, area of of business, really, with all the life and the fishing and everything that happened around that sea. He had crossed over to the other side last week to be on the pagan side, right? The more Greek, Roman, Syrian side. Now he's come back again, crossed over to the other side. He's more in Jewish territory again now. So in 22 it says, Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue. Synagogue just means gathering, so this is basically like the Jewish church. Okay, So this was the gathering, the, the uh, Jewish gathering of that time. Jairus was his name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking... There came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except for Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? 
The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside. And he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. She was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them not, strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. We see this pattern as we've looked at the healings of Jesus over time. He's ordering them not to tell anyone because he doesn't want to be overcome with people looking just for healing on their terms, but wants to continue to be able to preach the message of ultimate healing in him and what he has to offer as his death for us and his resurrection secures us that future healing, that permanent healing that we're all looking for. And let me pray for us and ask God to teach us this morning. God, we ask that you would uh, uncover what you're saying, that your spirit would meet us this morning. God, we, we come in with, um, with our own agenda, desiring for things to be fixed. Lord, you know we all live in the middle of brokenness. And God, I pray that you would give us patience, that we would be able to wait on you, that we would follow you, that we would see you as the ultimate healer, but that we would be able to wait on your timing as well. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was about five years old, one of my favorite things to do was to go with my dad to work. And he was a doctor, so kind of a a healer, so to speak, right? He would help people heal, help people recover. And uh, one of the things we would do, I wouldn't go to his daily work in the clinic, but on Saturdays he would do what they called uh, making rounds, where they would go and check on patients that they had in the hospital. And actually I remember at the time thinking that it was called rounds because the hospital was round, but actually that's just what everybody calls it, even if it's a square hospital. So just so you know, I'm giving you a little extra information there. But I I would go with him on his rounds, and I remember thinking it was really cool. I mean, I thought it was awesome that my dad got to be a part of that healing process. Like he got to help people get better. Um, and I was, I thought it was really neat. I thought he was this impressive person and I thought it was really great and I, I thought it was cool that he wanted me to come with him. Um, but, but as, as great as it was and how wonderful as it was that, that he was helping people to heal, I was also five years old, right? So, so I kind of had a short attention span. And so I also remember thinking that was neat, but I also remember very quickly getting bored with it, right? Very quickly wondering like, when are we going to stop and, and when am I going to get a piece of candy, right? And, you know, and, and when is he going to take care of me? And I think we often have that attitude about Jesus. We, we kind of quickly think, wow, Jesus is great and he heals and he is Lord and he's wonderful, but, but what has he done for me lately, right? When am I going to get my piece of candy? And I think that's the struggle we see when we look at the healing miracles of Jesus is very quickly we rush in to think, okay, he can fix it. Okay, he can fix what's wrong with me now. And, and sometimes Jesus says to wait. And so from watching these different people interact with Jesus, I want to try to put ourselves in their shoes and kind of try to see the world through their eyes as we walk through and, and look at the different characters. And so the first thing that I see is, is that we should follow the healer for others. And I think that's what we see in the first little episode. At the very beginning, when we have Jairus come up, he's this ruler of the synagogue, he's coming on, on behalf of his daughter, right? He's coming to Jesus for the sake of, of someone else. And this is, of course, what we should all be doing, right? We should all be pursuing him for others, convinced that Jesus is the healer, convinced that Jesus is someone that can, can bless those that we love. What I think is really interesting, though, is that uh, we see some unique things in the text here. Not, not very often is a character in the Gospels named, and Jairus is named. 
And so that kind of elevates him as someone who has a little more of an identity than the average character in the story, right? We have these long gospels and the disciples are named and a few characters are named, but it doesn't happen very often. Usually it's just a man or just a woman or just a boy, right? And here he's named. He's, he's given an identity. And not only is he given an identity, but we're told he's a ruler, right? He's an important person. He's, he's a part of the leadership. He's a part of the religious community. And what we know from the context, from what we see in, in the Gospel of Mark and all the other Gospels as well, is that uh, the uh, kind of administration, the leadership of the religious people at the time were not real excited about what Jesus was doing. Because at some levels he was dismantling their current structure, right? He was saying, you got the right God, but your structure is, is, is throwing people off here, right? And he was pushing people to, to understand God in, in new ways or in different ways, or in maybe, you might say, the, the way they should have all along, right? And so the religious people of that day did not get along with Jesus real well. And so we have here this man who comes with an identity. He has a name, and he's a ruler, right? He has a reputation. He has position. He has prominence in the community. And he's coming and just throwing himself at Jesus' feet. He's, he's giving all of that up to beg Jesus to help his daughter. And I think the call is for us to, to see Jesus in the same way. To see Jesus as more important than our position, right? More important than our name. See him as more important than our prominence or our reputation or whatever else we may have at stake. Because here we see this person who uniquely in the story has position. He's a ruler, he has a name, he has an identity, and he's just throwing all that down. He's just laying himself down at Jesus' feet, begging Jesus to help him. Begging this person who it doesn't normally fit for his place in society to respect Jesus. But here he is begging Jesus for help. I was thinking about that in our own life, the ways that we can do that right now. I was thinking of a historical figure. There was a movie that came out a few years ago about a guy named William Wilberforce. Anybody seen the movie Amazing Grace? You ever seen that? He's a famous character in the history of England because he basically did the same thing in risking his reputation and laying his name on the line for the sake of others, right? He came to this healer, Jesus, for the sake of others. He said these principles of grace and these principles of God's love for everyone should apply to how we see humanity in our society. And, and so he helped to abolish slavery in England. Years before slavery was abolished in America, William Wilberforce risked his name, risked his identity, gave all of that up to invite others to find this freedom that he knew because of Christ. It was because of his relationship with Christ that he saw people differently. And he was willing to give up his name. And he was willing to give up his reputation. So the challenge for us is, are we willing to do the same thing? I mean, we may not have this great battle to fight like the abolition of slavery, but God's going God's to ask us to risk our name, to risk our reputation, to give up who we are and what we've invested in for the sake of others. That's what it means to, to be on mission for Jesus, right? Is to be willing to give ourselves to bring others to him. And so my question is, is, are you doing that? What are the ways that you're willing to risk your name, to risk your reputation, to risk who you are? That The way we describe this in our mission statement is, is we say it's our job to be the church. And that, at some levels, may be an oversimplification, right? But it's the job of the church to be Jesus' hands and feet, to, to represent him in the world. The way Paul describes it in Colossians is that he's filling up what is lacking in Christ's suffering in his own body. And that he's continuing to suffer and to give of himself. 
to give up his life for the sake of others. And so we've got this beautiful example of that with Jairus. He's like, I don't care that I'm not supposed to like Jesus. I don't care that, that my name and reputation is on the line, but, but I know he's the healer, and I know he can help people. So the question is, are you doing that? Are you, are you inviting people to Jesus? Are you showing people Jesus? Are you saying, for the sake of others, he's the healer, and, and I can't heal you. My reputation is not enough to heal you. My name is not enough to heal you. All the education I've invested in is not enough to heal you, but Jesus can. Because a lot of times we've, we've invested all this effort, we've all invested all this time and money into building our career, building our identity, building who we are. And those, those may be good gifts and wonderful things that we can share for others, but ultimately we can't fix people, right? Jesus can. And that's what we see in the person of Jairus, inviting Jesus to come help his daughter. And so I think we need to be challenged with that. One of the ways that this really fleshes itself out is, is as followers of Christ, recognizing that the most important thing is for people to see that, that we don't have it all together, right? That, that we really need Jesus to heal us as well, and that we don't think we can fix them, but we want to invite them to the person that we think can. Right? We believe that Jesus ultimately is the healer, and so we're not inviting people to us. We're not asking people to follow us but we're inviting people to follow Jesus. And that's what we see in the life of, of Jairus. He is uh, bringing Jesus to the one he loves. How are you doing that? I mean, there's simple ways you do that. Obviously, you can speak about who Jesus is. You can invite a friend to church. You can uh, sh- try to share with them. You can listen. You can be there for them in times of need. There's many ways that you can do that. But the challenge is, are we doing that? Are we, are we being the church? Are we bringing Jesus to others? The next thing that I think we see in the next character is that we should follow the healer even when we're ashamed. Uh, even when we want to hide and, and lurk in the shadows and we don't feel good enough. And that's, that's what we see in this woman who, who comes to Jesus. In verse 25, what we have in, in the grammar here, uh, this is one of those things that it's hard to see in English, but we have a string of participles. So we have basically participles are like the ing. They're kind of more uh, adjectival type verb phrases. And so you have this descriptive verb phrases saying that uh, she's like this, she's like this, she's like this, and then this is what she did. Okay. So you've got this concrete verb in the end of this string of phrases that says she touched Jesus. And so you have this, these descriptors. Uh, and so in the original grammar, it kind of heightens this this act of actually reaching out to touch Jesus despite all the shame that she had. It says in verse 25, there was a woman, so in the text it would be being a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and she had suffered, so suffering much under many physicians. She spent all she had, spending all she had. So again, it's more kind of adjective type phrases, descriptive phrases. And she was no better. Uh, She grew worse, again, growing worse. She had heard, hearing the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. So it's a string of descriptions that tell us that uh, that she'd been struggling, she'd been suffering, she'd been hurting, she'd been growing worse. Things had been getting uh, no better but getting worse. And she came up behind him, sneaking up behind him, basically finally reached out to touch him because he was her only hope. And, and what it describes with this just, again, this kind of layer after layer after layer of descriptive phrase building up to the final concrete verb of, and finally she reached out to touch him is it describes someone who is just hiding in their shame. Someone who is so embarrassed. All these descriptive phrases piling on that, that she was in bad shape. She felt like an outsider. 
And in Jewish circles, she was very much an, an outsider. Well, Leviticus 15 makes it clear that, that anyone with her condition would have been considered unclean. I mean, just as bad as, as a leper who would, would have to say, unclean, unclean, right? And they just couldn't be fully assimilated into society. She would be an outsider. But what the gospel promises, what Jesus promises, and what was promised in the prophecies of like Isaiah 56, is that there's going to come this day when the outsiders would be welcomed in. And that's what Jesus is embodying. All these prophecies that we see before of, of one day all the nations are going to come in. One day all the outsiders are going to come in. One, one day those who are unclean will be clean and they'll be able to be in the Lord's presence. In Isaiah 56, there's this great little piece of it in verses 7 through 8. But, but in that section, he's talking about the eunuchs and uh, those who are outside and those who are afraid and those who are unclean. And it says in verse 7, For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Remember, Jesus quotes that when he's cleaning out the temple in other stories, right? He's saying, the purpose of my temple, and Jesus says also that he really is the temple, is that it would be a place for all people. No matter what shame they feel, that they would all feel welcomed in him. And in verse 8 it says, The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those other already gathered. Saying he, he gathers in the outcasts, those who are ashamed. And so the call is that we would follow Jesus even if we feel ashamed, even if we feel like an outsider, even if we feel like an outcast. When I counsel people, one of the things I come across a lot is people feel like their sin is worse, right? You, you often think that, well, I, I get that Jesus can forgive these people, but he can't forgive me because I've got, I've got this special situation, right? I'm especially unclean. I'm especially ashamed. I'm especially broken, and, and I don't think Jesus can cover that. But, but the story of the New Testament, the story of the Bible, is that his life, his death for us is enough to conquer any of that. that there's no sin that he can't reach. There's no uncleanness that he can't clean. And we see all these situations where people that the Israelites were told not to touch because they were unclean, Jesus is unafraid to touch. And so you may have grown up in a society that's told you that, that you're not okay. And Jesus is not afraid to touch you. Jesus is not afraid to heal you. Jesus is not afraid to, to be a part of your life, to set you free from that shame and from that darkness. And that's what we see as it, as it unfolds in the text here. It said all these things about her, how she'd suffered so much and she kept growing worse, and finally she touched him, touched his garment even, and it says in verse 28, Mark 5:28, For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. In verse 29, it says, Immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. She was healed. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? That's kind of a comical little part in the text, right? Because his disciples are like, are you crazy? There's this, there's this crowd all around us. There's no way we could possibly know who's touched you. And so he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. So finally she, had, she admitted what had happened. She had been lurking in the shadows. She had been hiding. She would snuck up behind him to steal a healing, basically. But finally she's, she's confessing. She's kind of coming out of the shadows now. And he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. It shows her love. 
Shows her tenderness. He wants to know who it is. He doesn't want her to hide anymore. He wants to bring her out of the shadows so that he can speak love into her life. And that's what we need to understand. There's, there's no sin that is so great that, that Jesus can't give you healing and invite you into community with him and his people. The way it's described in 1 Peter 2 is, he says in 1 Peter 2, 9, You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So you're God's people so that you can exalt his grace, right? So you can proclaim his excellencies. So that you can say, he, he pulled me out of darkness into light. And that's what Jesus does with this woman. He doesn't want to leave her hiding. He's already healed her, but he wants to bring her into the community of those who are healed. And one of the things that's really important for us to understand is that as we join community, that, that's actually a way that we exalt God's grace. Because when we're just focused on ourselves and just focused on what's wrong with us, we can't really live in community with other people. right? We're, we're obsessed with, with ourselves. But, but as we understand God's grace for us, that frees us to actually live in community with other people. Because there's, there's kind of two ways that we go with that. One, we're obsessed with how bad we are and we think we can't be around other people and we just kind of try to throw the whole thing out the window. Or we actually think that we're better than other people. And that's destructive to community, right? But when we understand God's grace that we are broken but he's healed us, then we can struggle together with other people. Then we can talk about what's going on. Then we can admit what we're struggling with. In verse 10 of 1 Peter 2, this great... This great quote about what God's doing and bringing us to become a new people now. It says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Right? Once you were lurking in the shadows, you didn't belong. You were an outcast. You are an outsider. Now you've come in. You don't have to be ashamed anymore. It says, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It's God's grace that, that brings us in. I was thinking about this idea of becoming a people, becoming one, and I got a picture here of some guys lined up in their uniform. It's a military town, so a few of you may own a uniform, right? And the, the word uniform, uh, what it speaks to is, is that we want everyone to be what? Yeah, I couldn't hear you, sorry. We, we want everybody to be uniform. Everybody mumbles at the same time, different words. Um, I shouldn't ask those kind of questions, I'm sorry. But what a uniform means is that we're uniform. That's what uniform means, right? Uniform means uniformity, right? It means the same. It means unity. It means of one form. And it says it's not any longer about all your differences. It's now about being on the same team. And, and what our uniform is as, as Christ's body, as his people, is the grace that he's shown to us, right? And so often in religious circles we get this so confused, because we think that our membership is based on our superior performance. Well, I'm better than other people, so I'll be a part of this club, and then I can kind of point at the bad people out there, but, but I'm good and God likes me because I've performed well. No, you're, you're a part because of the mercy. It says in First Peter 2 that you're brought in by his mercy that's shown to you. Once you weren't a people, but now you're a people. And we all share in common this need for healing. And that's what brings us in, so that we don't have to be ashamed anymore. When you're ashamed, the first thing that you have to understand is that God is gracious, that, that he loves you, and he wants to bring you in then into his community. One of our other statements of our mission statement is that we should submit to the Bible uh, in community together. And you can't really submit to the Bible unless you understand that God's gracious. Otherwise, you're going to think that, that it's you, you doing it, that it's your strength, that it's what you're doing to your life, that you're changing yourself. 
But we become a part of God's people by recognizing Jesus is healing. That he's the one that heals us, that he's the one that brings us out of the shadows, that he's the one that brings us in. As you grow in that, as you understand God's grace to you, then you'll be able to walk in community with other people. Then you'll be able to actually admit who you are. We'll be able to actually be honest about what we struggle with and, and pray for each other and say, I'm struggling, but I know that, that I'm a part of this community because of God's grace that he's shown to me. And that'll enable us to, to be more honest and that'll enable, enable us to show more grace to our brothers and sisters as well. But the last thing that we're challenged with is that we can follow the healer even when it's too late. Even when it's too late. Again, put yourself in the shoes of the, of the characters here in the story. If you put yourself in their shoes, think about how you would have felt if you had an emergency and you said, my daughter is about to die, and then Jesus was sidetracked by a, a chronic disease, by someone struggling with shame. And it's great that Jesus shows compassion to that person, but what we see in the text is that this other guy's daughter died while Jesus was taking time for this other person. I mean, how would you have felt? And what the text, I think, is trying to teach us there is that, that it's never too late for Jesus. I mean, it's never too late for Jesus. In verse 35, it says it this way. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? It's too late. Don't bother him anymore. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And I want to encourage you that in those moments where you feel like it is too late, that Jesus wants to speak this to you as well. Do not fear, only believe. In those moments where you feel like it, it's, it's over with now, nothing can be done. Jesus says, do not fear, only believe. But the circumstances are not what dictate our life. But Jesus, he's the one ultimately that's in control. And we saw this in the stories last week of the, all the crazy things that Jesus showed. He was in control over the elements and over the demons and over all these things. And we, showed, we saw that Jesus wasn't worried, right? And when we look to Jesus and see that he's not worried, then that gives us faith to, to believe, to, to trust, to not be afraid. He says, do not fear, only believe. And in verse 37, he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And so we see again this pattern where he's, he's trying to keep it from blowing up, right? He's trying to keep it from getting any bigger than it already was. He loves people and he has compassion on people and so he's healing people left and right, but that's not really the job he came for. The job he came for was the ultimate healing. The job he came for was to live the perfect life that we couldn't live and to die the death that we couldn't die to, to be our substitute. And that's the ultimate healing that he promises that that future that we're all rushing forward to where there will be no more tears, there will be no more pain. All of that will be wiped away. That's the ultimate healing that he's wanting to move people towards. And so he just brings in his inner circle of guys. And it says, They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion. The people were weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making such a commotion? Why are you crying, weeping? She's not dead, but she's only sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. So the ruler, Jairus, right, the man with an identity that risked it all to ask Jesus to help him out, then, then it was too late, right? Then the, then the chance was gone. 
And again, I think we, we live there a lot. We, we live in those moments a lot where we think if God had fixed it back there, I wouldn't be in the position I'm in now. And now it's too late. Now it's all blown up. Now there's no fixing this anymore. I was thinking about a time when, uh, when I had been too late, which is, actually happens quite often if, if you know me well. But, but this was a more dramatic time in my life. Uh, my wife and I were going on our honeymoon. And so, you know, we were about 13 when we f- first got married and, uh, about 20 years ago. And we were, we were going to the airport and we had trouble finding the airport because we were so young. Uh, we had a hard time finding the airport. We got there late and this is what we saw when it was time for us to get on the plane. Yeah, see? Oh, that was, <laughs> it was terrible. So, I kept myself from crying and tried to act like, you know, as a man, I could take care of my wife in the situation. I had, a, you know, you know, somebody had slipped me some, some uh, money at the uh, wedding or something. So I was like, alright, we're just gonna buy another ticket. We're gonna find another ticket. We're gonna make this work somehow. And we're walking to the next counter and the lady came running back from our gate and said, the plane's coming back. The plane's coming back into the gate. And she said that there was actually uh, some kind of light malfunction, and so they're bringing it in to replace a light bulb or to replace a light. And so we actually got to get onto the plane. When we thought it was too late, you know, and then when we're getting on the plane, I'm sure all the people were giving us dirty looks because they were like, what? Why did we come back for these two punk kids? You know, like, what is, what's going on? And, uh, but it, it was awesome. We, we thought we were too late, but we, we still got to get on. And that's kind of the situation with Jairus. He, he thinks it's over with now. There's nothing he can do. He's a great healer, but nobody can raise somebody from the dead. It's never too late for Jesus. I mean, no matter how bad it gets, it's never too late for him. As, as much as it feels like it's too late for us, as, as painful as it is for us, Jesus is still in control. And he says, Talitha Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, rise. And immediately the girl got up. This phrase, it's interesting, sometimes Mark will use the Aramaic phrase. That's kind of the common language that they spoke at the time, right, in Israel. Um, they, most people, we think most of them probably spoke and wrote Greek as well because a lot of the apostles are writing these texts in Greek. But their everyday spoken language would have been uh, Aramaic. And so sometimes Mark gives us these little phrases. And so he gives it to us in the original. And, and I think it's to show that it's, it's not some kind of special abracadabra, Right? I mean, Jesus is not some magician doing some crazy thing. He just says, little girl, get up, right? I mean, I have a 10-year-old little girl. In the mornings, I say, hey, honey, it's time to wake up. I don't have some sort of special voodoo magic word I use. I just say, get up, baby. I love you. It's time. Good morning. It's time to get up. And that's what Jesus says to this little girl. He just comes to this little girl and he says, come on, honey, get up. This is a beautiful picture of nothing is... Nothing is out of his control. Nothing is out of his reach. And he, he comes to us with such tenderness, right? G- gentleness and love. Again, not some kind of special abracadabra, but just little girl get up. Immediately she got up. She began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. Well, of course, right? They were blown away because she, she had been dead. But he, he raises her from the dead. Verse 43, and he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. So apparently it's clarifying. She's not a ghost, right? but she's really real. Just like when Jesus rose from the dead after the resurrection, he would eat with people. He was like, look, I'm, I'm not a ghost. I'm really here. Let's have some barbecue together. Let's, let's eat, right? And that's the same thing that we see here. She's, she's really alive. 
And again, this, this encourages us that it's never too late for Jesus and that we should always trust His grace even if, even if we're not feeling it in the moment. Right? Even if the worst nightmare has come true. I told you all last week, one of the things that happens as a pastor is I, I walk through oftentimes with people their worst nightmares. And what's amazing to me is to see people clinging to hope in Him, clinging to His grace, trusting His grace, even in the midst of those worst nightmares. And that gives me great encouragement. That encourages me to trust Him. That encourages me to see Him as this healer and that it's never too late for Him. He's always good, that He's always gracious, no matter how it feels to us in the moment. We know that we're moving forward to this time when all things are going to be made right. That's ultimately what Jesus is doing in the world. Again, part of our mission statement is that we would trust in God's grace. And that's foundational if, if you've never heard of Jesus before or if you've been a Christian walking with Jesus for 20 years. You've, you've got to understand His grace for you. But it's not about what you've done for Him, but it's about what He wants to do for you. It's about the ultimate healing that Jesus wants to give us. It, it's that future that He's bringing us towards where there's no more tear, no more pain, no more crying, no more mourning. So that's his invitation to all of us. Every morning is, come on, let's get up. It's time to live today. Trust me. Follow me. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you invite us to follow you. And I pray, God, that you would give us grace to to trust you. To see that you're good, even when we struggle, even when we stumble. We thank you that you love us, that you're kind to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.